we're in Colossians. We're continuing in our series on Colossians. And, and the, really, the, the way that I want to kind of approach this this morning is to kind of understand how important context is. It's so important to understand where, uh, where something is coming from and, and the context behind it. And so I, I use this example. If you wanted to skydive and you wanted to, to go jump out of an airplane with a parachute, right? Like you wouldn't show up and say like, hey, let's just flip to the jumping part and read it and be like, okay, when it reaches this altitude, jump out of the plane, let's go, right? And, and go do it. If you didn't study how to pack up your chute <laughs> and how to attach it and how do you land and when do you pull the, the string, like all those things are pretty important details, right? And so if you didn't have that context and you just jumped in and said, let's just jump out of this plane, you might not even know to put the parachute on in the first place, right? So, uh, so we're looking at scripture kind of in that same way that we recognize that we're, we're going to preach uh, through the book of Colossians in about 12 weeks here at Riverside. But this is really one letter that was written by Paul to church, a very pastoral letter, almost a sermon written to a very specific church in which he does what we do here each week. He, he highlights a, an important and powerful truth about God. He says, this is what's true about God. This is a, what's true about Jesus and who he is. And then here's how it should impact our life. Here's how we should dive into it. And so we're coming down to the end here and we're jumping into application. But if you just jump in at the application and you don't understand what you're applying, if you don't understand where it's come from, um, then it's very likely that, that you're going to misapply and misunderstand what the, the, the commands are. And so I want to do a, a flyover with you. And so if you turn to your Bible uh, into Colossians and you start in chapter 1 and kind of look at some of the verses and the, the chapter headings, I just kind of want to remind you where we've been so we have some context this morning. Paul begins by saying that he is thankful for this church, that they have an authentic faith in Jesus that flows out of the true gospel and they have a faith in Jesus and what he has done for them. And they have a love for the saints. And they have a hope that's laid up in heaven. And so they have faith in what Jesus has done. Their hope is in the future of being with him. And that's ultimately where their hope resides. And in the present, they are loving their brothers and sisters. They're loving the church. They're loving the people around them. And he says, this is good. This is what a church is meant to look like. You guys are doing it the right way. And then he points to Jesus. He, he says, hey, hey, I'm proud of you guys, but let's not forget what this is really all about. And so he spends time talking about the preeminence and the excellence of Jesus, how Jesus was the, was the firstborn of all creation. He's above all things. Everything was be created by and through him and for him and for his glory. And because of what he has done for us, his perfect spotless record has been placed upon us, and we've been offered total forgiveness of sins. And none of that is possible apart from Jesus, that Jesus makes all of that possible, that Jesus gives us his perfect record. He takes the, the penalty for our sins, and now we can stand here knowing that we are forgiven, and when God looks at us, he sees purity, he sees obedience, he sees honor. And it's not because we've done it or, or that's our record, it's because that's the record of Jesus placed upon us. And so he's encouraging them, live out of the light of that truth. That's what's true about you if you're a follower of Jesus. Now live in light of that. Let that drive you forward into the way that you act. He reminds them that he's been struggling on their behalf. He's been in jail. He's been beaten. He's been in prison. And he wants them to know, like, hey, if you're struggling, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Sometimes struggle is the call of the gospel. Most often struggle is the call of the gospel that we're supposed to work hard. And so working hard, struggling, toiling, that's not a sign that we've missed the mark. It might be a sign that we're on the right track. He encourages them, don't fall into religion or legalism, that there were those who were coming in and trying to say, hey, that's good that you've, you've gotten this far, but 
now you have to do these ceremonies. You have to do these rituals. You have to do things in this way. You have to kind of fall into this thing. And he says, no, don't fall into something where you're trying to pursue something that you've already received. You already have forgiveness. You already have purity. Don't look to religion to give that to you. That's going in the wrong direction. And that brings us up to chapter 3, and, uh, and I want to, since that's the chapter that we're in, I want to actually focus even a little more clearly in on that, and I want to take the time, and I know time is valuable here this morning, we don't have a ton of it, uh, but it's so important that I think God's Word uh, can speak powerfully to us here, and so uh, it's not on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you can see it. Um, it says, uh, Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, and, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it's, he's saying if then, but it's kind of rhetorical, it's like, hey, since you've been raised with Christ, since you are... Uh, followers of Jesus, and there's evidence of fruit in your life that you are following him. Since that's true about you, seek the things uh, that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We saw a beautiful picture of that this morning, right? That for every one of us believers, what we saw Terry uh, uh, exemplify for us here this morning is what the reality is of us, that we have died and we've been raised to new life. And now our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Uh, now, well, one of the places where this, this truth comes home most powerfully to us in this moment is related to the election is related to our reactions to the election, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, the things that we're seeing happening in the country around us. And um, uh, I, I like to share, I totally stole this from another pastor, right? But it's the job of a pastor to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And we want to begin by comforting the disturbed. If you, if you came in this morning and you're really struggling, if you have, have been surprised yourself at the weight of emotion that has come over you over the, over the course of this week, and, and, if, you're, and if you're really wrestling, and, and if you have been wronged, uh, we want you to know that we're here um, as your support. We love you. Uh, we want you to be encouraged. We want you to look at Jesus and feel encouraged, and that's my encouragement to you, that, that your life, if you placed your faith in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can take it. Nobody can change it that he is your life. But, but this is where we can also uh, disturb uh, the, the, the comfortable a little bit. If, if you've been overwhelmed with either elation, this surprising, like just total, utter joy at what has transpired, or utter despair where life no longer seems to have any purpose in going forward, then, then the reality is that, that Probably a, a, a false idol has been revealed in your heart, that you were looking to a political system or a figure or a person as your source of joy rather than looking to Christ. And it's an opportunity to recenter your life on who Christ truly is. It's an opportunity to be encouraged by that and say, man, this is big, it's important, it's significant, but it's not my life. Jesus is my life. And, and when I know that Jesus is my life, then I can push into these hard and difficult things and I can roll up my sleeves and I can get in there and I can do the work that God created me to do, but my life isn't dependent on it, right? My life is dependent on him. And it actually frees you to work so much more effectively and powerfully. And so he says, he continues on from there, he says, your life is hidden with Christ. So therefore, because your life is hidden with Christ, because he is your life, because we're supposed to set our eyes on mine, therefore put to death everything that is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In this passage, uh, I love the Bible because the Bible helps us to know what is sin and what is not sin. It, it identifies for us. These are the things that, that, that are apart from God. These are the things that pull us away from him. Uh, these are the things that, that, that God does not desire. And, and we saw a lot of these things on display through this political campaign, right? In the candidates themselves and, and, and in people that have, have followed the candidates. And it's, and it's stirred us into this emotional frenzy where there's a lot of these things that are on display. And so as Christians, we should be able to look at, at some of the things uh, that Donald Trump said specifically, that whether we uh, are glad he won or whether we're mad that we won, whether we voted him, whether we did it doesn't matter. You should be able to look at some of those things and say, that was wrong, right? That, that, that's not the way that we're meant to live, that, that we don't want the world to think that that's the right way to live. Like, that is objectively wrong. The things, uh, we can all agree that one of the unfortunate results of this election is that certain portions of our society have felt a greater freedom uh, to be hateful, right? To, to express hate, and they feel like that they're validated that in some way. And we as the church, whether we are happy or sad about the results of the election, should stand together and say, that is not acceptable. That is counter to the gospel, and that is not who we're called to be as a nation, who we're called to be as the people of Jesus. And the world is looking to see how we're going to react as a church in these moments. And I had some conversations after the first service. There's people in our church who've experienced these acts of hatred that have been personally affected. Um, and so we don't want to push it out to, to those people out there. This, this comes home. This is, this is home for us. And my hope, um, for one thing, is that if you're in a situation where you see something like that happening, I hope as a person of God that you would have the courage to stand up and let the person know that that's not right, right? That, that you would intervene as you have power. Um, that, that you would be the hands and feet of Christ in that moment to call out sin wherever you see it, whatever, whatever side it may fall on. And there's plenty of it to go around, right? And where does he land in this? He says, hey, because the result of this is there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, Scythian, slave, free, barbarian, none of them. We're, don't group people. <laughs> We're people, right? There's a, over 100 people in this room. Every single person in here had, had a different set of motivations and desires and understanding that led them to go to the polls and vote for a candidate that they felt was the best option or that led them maybe not to vote at all if that was their personal conviction. And we can debate about uh, our rights as citizens and all those sorts of things, right? But, but to group people and say, hey, if you voted for this person, this is who you are, right? We don't get that right to place that upon anybody. Uh, we're, we shouldn't, the more that we view people as groups, demographics, these guys, and we saw this on display on election night, right? Like, okay, well, the, this hasn't come from this county, and we know who these people are, and we know how they're going to vote because we group them, right? This is, this is this group. We're individuals who are seeking to follow after Jesus that are, that are led by motivations. And so to assume that you know someone's motivation for why they did what they did is wrong. <laughs> and it doesn't reflect what, what we see here, that we are all one, and we should all seek to be one. We should seek unity. 
Now, he continues on with a list of good things, and this is what, what Keith preached on last week, and I know we don't do this very often in here, but I, I want to ask you guys if you would be so willing. Is, uh, would you stand with me and just read this next section out loud with me? It's a good exercise. Trust me, it's therapeutic. You'll like it. Okay, so picking up at verse 12, it says this. seated. Every single one of us should probably feel convicted about something in there, right? That, that our base fleshly reaction, and, and the flesh always emerges in these moments, probably led us to violate something in there. One of these calls, right? Did I have a compassionate heart all week? Did I demonstrate kindness and humility and meekness? And, and you know what it says? It doesn't say don't don't argue, don't disagree on everything. No, it says, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, with a heart full of thankfulness. I don't know about you guys, but that's not what I've seen on display this week, right? And, and, and it took me a little while to, to adjust my mindset. I mean, honestly, I think everybody was taken by surprise. <laughs> Maybe not everybody, but um, it took a little while to adjust your mind to what transpired. And so, the gut reaction when you see somebody boldly and loudly saying something that you uh, disagree with or having a very emotional reaction that doesn't make sense to you, you want to disagree with them. You want to enter in and debate with them or, or argue with them or convince them that they're wrong in what they're doing. But the reality is, as I went through the week, what I came to see more and more is this person's trying to tell me something about themselves. We, we heard this said and demonstrated where we're like, this election at its core, is about blank. But the problem is, is we all fill that blank in a little bit differently. And so if somebody is, is emotive, either exuberantly happy, or, or very destroyed and devastated, if we don't understand it, we might be led by our flesh to critique it or, or to challenge it. Um, but really what we should be doing is, as compassionate brothers and sisters is looking and saying, like, wow, they're deeply impacted by this. Their, their motivation for what they voted must have been different than mine, and, and I should try and understand them. I should understand what drove them to that place. That's the Christian way forward, right? This is a real opportunity, because soon everybody's going to be back to posting their memes and their cat photos and like all this crazy stuff, and, and everything's going to get shoved deep down inside, and nobody's true life is going to come up on the screen anymore. But for this rare moment, People are just letting it hang out. They're being raw. They're being honest. And this is the moment to engage. This thing, the moment to say, like, hey, I want to listen. I want to learn. Like, help me to understand 
What motivates you to feel so strongly in, in that way? It, it takes hard work. It, it's a lot easier to just come up with a witty one-off and just fire it at them. It takes more work, and it probably isn't going to happen on Facebook. I got bad news. I have yet to see like a, a conversation that led to somebody changing their mind on anything on Facebook. Maybe you guys have seen it. But it's probably going to happen in person. It's probably going to be sitting down for a cup of coffee. And, and here's the crazy thing. Uh, we, we talk about discipleship. And uh, can you imagine if this week you got together with somebody who you didn't really agree with, but the two of you sat down and read Colossians 3 together, and you're like, wow, how, how do you apply that to your life right now with what you're feeling? And then you share with them how you apply that to your life with what you're feeling. What, man, how powerful would that be, right? That, that could change the whole tenor of the conversation. I, um, now, there's, there's so much we could say about this, but we, um, but we want to get to the actual passage that we're studying today. So let me, let me just say that, um, man, if you're, if you're here and, you, and you're, uh, you feel misunderstood, it's the job of our church to come and to try and understand you and to try and come alongside you. And, but I want to encourage you, whatever your experience has been in this, don't, uh, don't demonize entire groups of people. Don't demonize individuals. There may be people, after reading that passage, you might be like, man, there's somebody in this room that I need to go give a hug to and say I'm sorry. <laughs> from, from a discussion that happened online, right? There might, there might be, the, 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 if nothing else, there's the thoughts of your heart that maybe were never vocalized, but you just need to repent of and say, like, wow, like, I did not approach this like Christ. And I'm first in line, okay? And so, now we enter, and you think the hard part's over. It's actually just beginning, right? <laughs> and so now we pick up in verse 18, and what I want you to see here is that, uh, that these instructions always land somewhere specific. Paul Miller would say this in, in The Loving Life. He said this, love lands, Love always lands somewhere very specific. It's not this ethereal kind of out there concept that's floating. It lands in a very specific thing. When, when you get these instructions, you live them out in a very specific way. And, and he was preaching and, and writing to a church in Colossae that was in the Roman Empire, and he was writing into the home situations of the people that were there. And there's incredible application into our time as well, and we can learn from it, but we recognize that it always goes somewhere specific, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to drive into something specific. And so picking up in verse 18, it says this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so, uh, let's just acknowledge right off the bat that, that there have been portions and sections of the church that over the years have used uh, these passages and individuals have used these passages in a wrong way uh, to condone things that were not part of God's plan, uh, spousal abuse, slavery. Uh, that's not what this passage is about. That's not how it's meant to be used. Uh, that's not the context that it exists in. And so wherever people have done that, again, we as a church say, no, that's wrong. We reject that, right? Uh, but what it, it does is it challenges us with this, this fact that we have to come to a difficult passage like this, and there's, there's difficult passages in Scripture, and we have to make a decision. Am I going to look at the Bible as, as uh, some ancient writings with some, some wisdom that we can glean here and there? We can pick and choose uh, some, some little pearls of wisdom that we like out of it. Or is it the authoritative Word of God 
that has authority over our lives and our actions. And the, the, the challenge is, is that if we don't accept it as authoritative, then we've placed ourselves as the authority over the Word of God. We say, here's, here's the Bible, but I'm the highest authority. I look at it and I determine what is good and bad in the Bible. And, and recognize that this in, embraces a, a sort of cultural bias, right? We've, we've, we've identified, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years that we've lived here on the planet. We have a limited cultural lens to look at a passage like this and, and pass judgment on it. And, and it's wrong to do that if, if you think about it, that, that, that there's so much more. I also, obviously, that um, we wanted to say, man, I wish Paul would have said, like, hey, uh, give women greater equality hey, uh, you know, end slavery. Slavery is wrong. It should just be ended right now. We might want them to say that, but recognize that these Christian ideals are the very ideals that brought slavery to an end, but it took 2,000 years for it to unfold. It was a systematic uh, corruption that couldn't be removed just like that, and the church was not in a position of power at the time. They were, they were meeting in houses. They were hiding from the authorities as it was, and so the reality of them having this uh, uprising where they would end slavery was just not a reality. And it, and it would paint the picture that, that Paul would be saying, hey, you can only serve Christ in a perfect scenario. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is whatever your scenario is, there are broken systems in the world, there's messed up stuff, there are broken relationships, and it is still possible for you to honor Jesus and serve him wherever you are, whether the system is broken or not. And it's always broken, right? And so it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive and fight for this. And, and there's a lot now, and I'll cover that, but I kind of want to jump into it systematically here. And I have less time than I would like. But he talks about three groups here, husbands and wives, children and parents, and employers and employees, or, or slaves and masters. Employer and employee would be the closest representation in, in applying it to our lives today. And he talks to the, the one who is, is powerless in some ways and the one who has power or a greater level of power, the one who's put into a position to submit and the one who's put in a position uh, to, to have power over the other person. And he speaks to these groups. And so first we look at husband and wives. And I preached a longer sermon on this in Ephesians when we were in that. And so all I can encourage you is if you want the full, the full pulled out detail that, to go back on our website and, and, and listen to, uh, there's much more nuance and detail in it. But, but let me just say this. Clearly the situation was um, he was writing because wives were having a hard time submitting to their husbands and, and honoring them in a way that was fitting to the Lord. And husbands were not really loving their wives and they were being harsh with them. And he speaks to both groups. Um, now when you look throughout Scripture... Uh, there's this, um, this thing that is inescapable, and it's this, this idea of male headship in the home. And we may wrestle with it. We may feel like, oh, that's antiquated. Uh, we may not like it. Um, but in Scripture, in different places, it takes it all the way back uh, to the garden. And the, the, there's, there's this idea of roles and relationships in a marriage. I may want to have a baby. I really don't want to, but... <laughs> I may want to carry and bear a, a baby in my, in my body for nine months and then deliver very painfully, uh, you know, uh, at the end of that time. God hasn't given me that role, right? Like physically, not, not given to me. And so that while men and women are completely equal, um, completely created in the image of God, of equal worth and value, of equal potential, there are unique roles that we each have. And, uh, and, and it's biblical to kind of embrace this and say, God, how can I operate within this? We, we tend to jump to the worst-case scenario. What about the abusive husband, right? Uh, or what about the wife that, um, uh, that is just completely subversive? You know, we, we think of these worst-case scenarios. But, but I encourage you instead, think about the best-case scenario, right? 
Well, women, what, what woman, uh, if, if you're married, wouldn't want to be married to a man who, who leads so lovingly and so well and with so much tenderness and generosity that, that you would say, hey, I would follow him wherever he would go. Uh, I, I'm so grateful that God has blessed me with a, a man that would lead that way. And what, what man wouldn't say, oh, I want to be married to a, a woman that is so uh, lovely and, and she challenges me and, and her character is such that I really bear the weight. Uh, I experience the heaviness of leading this family. I take it so seriously because I love her so much. I don't want to let her down. I don't want to disappoint her. I want to lead in a way that really allows her to flourish and become all that God created. Who doesn't want a marriage like that, right? If you're here and you're single and you feel like marriage is in your future, consider that when you're looking at a potential spouse. Is this the kind of person that is going to be like that? Is this a guy that's going to lead me well? Is this a woman that I can love, that I can pour myself out that I could empty myself to, uh, it says, love the husbands in Ephesians, it says, to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church, which means he died for her. <laughs> Is this the woman I'd be willing to give my life for? Literally and, and day by day, moment by moment. That's, that's the kind of marriages that we're meant to have. Children and parents, right? Children are called to obey their parents. This is a reflection of what we see in the, in the Ten Commandments, and it's the, the command with a promise. Honor your father and mother that, you may, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's right and good to honor our parents. That can be really hard. And even when, as we get older, that relationship changes and shifts, and it can be even more difficult. But it's, again, it's a recognition of like a parent is not superior to their child. They're not better, but they have a role <laughs> to raise that child. Uh, not to discourage that child, not to provoke that child, to help encourage them so that they want to be a part of the family unit that they were born into. And so, fathers, we have a heavy burden. And mothers, you're not, you're not out of this, right? <laughs> Just because you're not specifically called there uh, in this place. Um, that there's a call on parents to love children. Well, I think it's just because guys sometimes tend to be a little bit more harsh than, and provoking than, than the women. Stereotypically, putting people in a basket, which I said I'm not going to do, right? Like, we're not going to lump people together. But if we were to stereotype, which we won't. Don't provoke your children to wrath. And, and, and there's so much that can be said of this lesson. Let me, let me just read this, because I think this is helpful. When we think about bond servants and masters, uh, this, this commentary, I, I don't claim to be an expert on ancient Roman um, bond servant uh, relationships. And so it says this, it says the Roman institution of being a bondservant or slave, uh, which is the word doulos in Greek, uh, was different from the institution of slavery in North America during the 17th through the 19th century. Slaves or bondservants or servants, it could be translated all, that, all those ways, generally were permitted to work for pay and to save enough money to buy their own freedom. In the, in the parable where Jesus talks about the talents, he's giving those talents to doulos, to, to servants. Uh, to invest and to use wisely, and he gives them freedom, and he goes away for a long time, and then he comes back and he expects to see a return on his investment. But it's, it's a very different picture than what we might have in our mind immediately. They were entrusted with immense amounts of money and responsibility. The New Testament assumes that trafficking in human beings is sin. He talks about it in 1 Timothy 1. He talks about enslavers in a list of sin, that that's a sinful, wrong practice. It talks about it in the book of Revelation. And Paul urges Christians who are bondservants that can gain their freedom to do it. Because it's hard to have two masters, an earthly master and a heavenly master, right? So he says, gain your freedom if you can do it. And so the closest parallel that we can talk about is really this idea of, like, most of us are in a situation where we're either employed and under someone or we're an employer and we have people working under us. And sometimes we have both of those sort of relationships going on. And the question is, how are you going to work? What is your relationship with Christ, the fact that Christ is your life, how is that going to affect the way that you do your job? 
If you're in a lower position, are you going to work with excellence whether somebody's working, watching or not? If you're in a higher position, are you going to invest in and care for the people under you and not just use them? Are you going to help them to flourish and grow and treat them with love? There's so much more that we could say here, but what I want you to see most powerfully is that Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he didn't do himself. Jesus came and made himself powerless. He, he, he took off his, his uh, righteous divinity. He was seated and throned on high, and he came down and put on flesh, right? He submitted to the rejection, the disbelief, the torture, and the ultimate murder that his own creation brought upon him, right? What an incredible level of submission. Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus didn't just do what made him look good. He completed the work, the difficult work that was laid out for him, and he received the inheritance as his reward, and then he turned and he gave that inheritance to us. And so if you're in a position today where you feel powerless, I want you to see that you have a unique opportunity to enter into and experience the sufferings of Christ, to know him in his sufferings, to know him more deeply and experience what Christ experienced so that he can bring about a resurrection in your own heart. But Jesus wasn't just powerless. He was also powerful. He's our, he's our example and, and, and our power in that as well. He truly and sacrificially loves us, and he is not harsh with us. He's like the perfect husband to the church. That He could be harsh. He could be angry. He could be disappointed. But he continually pushes in in love. He shows us how to do it. As his children, he does not provoke or discourage us. Rather, he, he offers us continual encouragement. And like, like the greatest boss, like the greatest master, he goes beyond just treating us justly and fairly. In fact, he, re, he pushes that aside. He says, I'm not going to emphasize justness and fairness because if I did that, you would be in trouble. I'm going to go beyond. I'm going to transcend justice and fairness, and I'm going to give you grace and mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. He's the perfect example of how we're called to live. And so my prayer for you today is that, that, that these words would be encouraging to you, whether you're in a position of power or powerlessness that you would look at all that it means to have Christ as our life and how that empowers you to live, to reject these, these wicked things, to live out these good things, and to do it specifically. The greatest opportunity we have is not to repost something on Facebook or to sign this pledge. or, or It's to live in the life where God has placed you, in your neighborhood, in your home, with your family, in your workplace, and be a voice for Jesus. Be his hands and feet right where he's placed you. Join me in prayer.